Hello and welcome wherever you are in the world and whatever you are doing. Matthew Grant here, your host for the Instec podcast. Now, we're taking a pause from events and reports for August at Instec, but with a growing team and working with more than 170 companies, we're getting ready for a busy series of events and reports from September. Joining me this week is Steve Pretry. I've known Steve for a long time. He's a partner with World Innovation Lab, or Will, and Steve is based in California, but the fund brings in investment and other partners from Japan and invests around the world. You're going to hear about the areas of innovation in insurance that Steve and his colleagues are interested in and investing in, including opportunities in the emerging economies, the growth in embedded insurance, and low code. Now, traditionally, Will has invested in late-stage companies, but with the recently announced Tokyo Marine Fund, investments are being made in early-stage companies at seed and series A level. So there's something for everyone in this one. Now, thanks to all of you that have contacted us. Let us know you're listening and what you think of these discussions. We know you are there, but unless you tell us, we don't know who you are. So if you've got a moment, please do drop me a note on LinkedIn, Matthew Grant, or email me, matthew at instec.co, to tell us what you think and what you would like us to do better. Be very much appreciated. Thank you. Now over to Steve. Steve, it's great to be talking to you again. You and I have known each other, cracky, I think, for over 30 years. So we'll talk a bit about that in a minute. But you are today a partner at World Innovation Labs, uh, or we're going to refer to them as Will. You are based in California. And uh, the companies you've invested in, or your or Will have invested in, is Uncork, Ladder, yourself for a founder of Metromile. Um, people in the UK or around the world might know Wise, formerly TransferWise. And uh, uh, in your time at Metromile, which of course was in the news recently for Lemonade, you were founder there and uh, yeah, I think one of the early companies driving telematics. Uh, before that, you were at Sura Mobile. And where we first came across each other was at Catastrophe Modeler RMS. I looked up on LinkedIn and it was back in 1993 up to the break up to 2005. Um, so we will come back and talk a little bit about that later on. Um, but clearly, great experience there to be managing a major investment fund. So, so welcome. Really glad to be talking to you. Good to be talking to you again, too. And you're joining us from California. So I'm hoping you've had your uh, your first shot of coffee in the morning because it's uh, pretty early in the day for you. I have had the first bit of coffee. I probably should have gone back for seconds, but uh, most of the way through it at this point. And you've probably been for a run as well, knowing you, Steve. But um, it's also great to see you're, you're sitting outside enjoying the, the morning weather with some trees around you. We never quite know from somebody uh, in California quite what's going on in the climate or earthquakes and things. So it looks like no wildfires approaching, fortunately. Who knows about earthquakes? But hopefully we'll Not get recently. I, I, the ones, uh, there were a couple last summer or so that got within five or six miles of us. Uh, so it is... An ongoing challenge. So far, we have not had smoke this summer um, from any of the wildfires, but that has been a recurring theme as well that highlights kind of the, the changes that are happening and the impact that is ha- happening, particularly in the state. Let's just first of all talk about, Will, um, you'll need to give me an update on the, the numbers, but I know that you have recently announced that you raised an additional $1 billion for your third growth fund. But could you just talk a little bit about what you're doing there and you know, more broadly is your investment thesis. Yeah. And Will is a, it's a very interesting organization. Um, so the primary fund um, 
growth stage fund. We invest in, we have a team in Palo Alto that invests in the U.S. Um, across sectors. So we're, you know, I focus on insure tech, fintech um, related sectors. Some of my partners focus on more enterprise SaaS, cybersecurity, developer tools. So there's a broad mandate that we have. Um, out of the the primary growth fund, typically coming in Series B and later, um, can go all the way up to pre-IPO. And so we're typically investing, you know, five million at the entry end if we're just squeezing into a round, um, up to, you know, in, in some cases thirty to fifty million dollars in a given company, and pretty flexible on whether we we lead, probably lead thirty to fifty percent of the time. Okay, did you get that? Steve and his colleagues invest up to 30 to $50 million in a single company. Now, every one of these episodes is worth listening to, I think. But today, we're going to learn some really interesting stuff. As part of that, I um, have a team in Japan as well that is investing there. Um, and also have a vehicle where we are doing fund of funds investing. So our LPs, limited partners and investors in other funds, um, both at the, the early stage, as well as um, some of the brand names like Lightspeed and Sequoia and others. Oh, that's really helpful. Now, I want to come back in a minute to that to the Japanese side of the business because I read a really interesting quote on the website. But before we do that, uh, I had somebody contact me recently from a large UK insurance company who is one of the listeners and uh, it's Mark. And he said the reason he likes listening to this is it gives him some really stimulating ideas. So, Steve, not to put you on the spot, but uh, any hint of what kind of stimulating ideas are people going to get out of our discussion today? We'll see. I think this is going to come up a couple of times as we're talking through things. But um, one of the areas that I've been diving into recently um, you know, particularly as we're looking at the trend towards embedded insurance and really trying to think about how um, data sharing is going to work in some of those environments where you have um, insurance being offered within other platforms um, and how do you effectively enable risk selection and underwriting in that environment, but at the same time perfect consumer privacy. And so one of the things I've been really looking at and thinking about is um, – something called federated learning on the machine learning side and, and thinking about how that can be employed to um, both the allow the ability to, to build models across data sets while protecting consumer privacy. How you bring together kind of an ecosystem of partners that are distributing and underwriting insurance in, in different environments is going to be a really interesting theme over the next few years. Federated learning for machine learning. Do you know what that means? Well, I didn't. So I asked you to explain what this meant in practice. It was first popularized um, by Google kind of 2016, 2017. It was basically when you think about it, it is how do you effectively distribute a model into different devices? And, it, and so for where they did it was with the, the Google keyboard and showing how you could basically have a model running and learning on an individual's device, accessing their data, but it stays private and stays local. And then as the model learns there, that kind of updated model gets moved back to a central authority and is combining kind of those 
improved models across thousands of devices and then updating the central model based on the combination across those. And in that way, you're kind of learning from these disparate data sets without actually accessing them directly. Um, and so it, it protects privacy. Okay, this is really interesting, but there's also quite a lot to take in here. So a quick recap. Federated learning is about analyzing data locally on lots of different individual devices, then bringing the learning from that together in one central location. That protects privacy, but as Steve goes on to explain, there are other uses too. One of the things I've seen, for example, large incumbent insurers think about doing is as they deal with these challenges of, hey, we've got these legacy systems, we've got data in all these different places, it's very burdensome to try and bring all of those into a centralized database. Um, and it can be even the sort of thing of an insurance company that has multiple subsidiaries that each have their own data. And instead of trying to pool those with both the, the cost and you know challenges associated with that, how can you use something like federated learning to allow the models to basically run in these disparate data sets, but then be combined centrally in a way that allows um, you know, that machine learning to be done at scale with access to all these different data sets um, without necessarily having to go through the, okay, how do we normalize, combine them across into to one centralized database, which is both A, creating a security vulnerability because all that data is in one, in one place, um, but also obviously the, the challenges of doing that combination, managing that, keeping all the data updated. Okay, that's one other use of federated learning, but it has benefits outside of a single organization too. And so you can look at it either within a given organization and how they might want to do that to bring more data into the, the machine learning and modeling that they're doing, or you can start looking at it across kind of partner ecosystems where you know, even things like a, a credit bureau could be accessing data in a, in a bank and running their models and updating the models without having to, you know, do something like Experian does and bring all that consumer data into one centralized store, which, again, is creating a security vulnerability to where if it's breached, then all that consumer data is, ac is accessible in one place. And so there are a bunch of different models um, to where it could be useful. But I think that as we look at machine learning going forward, I think that is one of the, the next evolutions we'll see. And I think it opens up a lot of really interesting possibilities around where insurers and other brands, whether they're in financial services or elsewhere, can partner together more effectively to deliver a better customer experience, more tailored products, but also protect consumer data privacy in, in interesting ways. And it, what strikes me about that is it also rewards the individual or the company that feels that they are taking more effort or making more effort to protect their assets. They're not doing anything they want to hide from the insurer. So you can say on that situation, well, if you're prepared to share the data in that federated learning, you can benefit and actually you benefit before the rest of the world benefits from it. So there seems to be a really nice sort of symbiotic relationship between people wanting to protect their own assets, whether it's a company or an individual and insurance company wanting to engage in that. So yeah, I can see I can see it really interesting at lots of different levels in there. Hi, I'm Jeremy, one of the members of the research team here at Instec, here to talk to you about our newsletter, which comes out every week on Wednesdays. They offer our key insights into the world of insurance and companies to look out for. You can have a look at our newsletter right now on our website, instec.com. 
www.thepodcastmarketingguru.co and make sure to sign up so you never miss out. If you have any questions or insights of your own, please do get in touch by sending me an email at jeremy at or reaching out on LinkedIn. And then I, I wanted to come back on that Japanese point. So you had a, a quote on your website. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to feed that back to you. Um, that, you know, one of the, the will principles is leveraging your differences. And I'm mm-hmm. just wondering if you could give an example with that difference between your colleagues in the US and your colleagues in Japan. Um, what would be an example of some of the differences you've got and how does that sort of give you an advantage in what you're doing? There are pretty significant differences in what companies and products are going to work in Japan versus other places in the world. And so I think that having that team there and the ability for us to kind of bounce ideas off of each other um, and understand some of the differences in, in those markets really helps. So, for example, I have one of my partners, Messiah, um, who does a lot of the financial services work in Japan and will often sit and kind of look through a given you know, business or idea and talk about, okay, how would this work in Japan? What are the differences? How does distribution work there? How would this work in the US? And and kind of really gives us the ability to learn from each other in a unique way, working in, in very different marketplaces. And, and is one outcome of that, the world just gets more homogenized and therefore you get some early mover advantage because you see opportunities you can learn from Japan. I know you're also now looking around the world more broadly. Or, or do you see these markets sort of continuing to have their own unique characteristics and therefore there's you're, there's a different way of having advantage and of course they're both not necessarily mutually exclusive where you understand that local market better and therefore can sort of build on local market habits. The sort of homogeneity versus the individuality as you look around the world. I think the individual markets are still very different. But at the same time, I think the learnings you have from one market can be used very effectively as you're thinking about building a playbook in a new local market. Historically, Silicon Valley in particular was very focused on in-person meetings. You know, I, I want to be able to get on a bike and go to the companies that I'm investing in and, and do an in-person meeting. And that's the only way I can really get to know an entrepreneur. And I think the the last few years has forced us to learn how to do that remotely and over this type of interaction. And I think that's opened up kind of the range of places that people are willing to invest in. So I, you know, yesterday, for example, I had a morning where I was talking to a um, a CEO of an, uh, of an African insure tech startup um, that was actually sitting in Italy as we were having the discussion um, in the morning. And then right after that was talking to a company in Brazil. Steve goes on to talk about how the opportunity for insure techs and innovation in emerging economies is fundamentally different than the experience of some of the well-known US and European insure techs where insurance is already well-established. So whether it's the a Metro Mile, a Hippo, a next, any of those kinds of MGA models, where one of the challenges I think that we saw in the US is as innovative as those companies were, as innovative as the products were, um, as, as good of a job as they did in delivering a differentiated customer experience, um, they were operating in markets where there was 70, 80% insurance penetration already. And so effectively, you were having to take customers away from the existing incumbents, and that's a hard thing to do. You have to be 10x better, um, like we've talked about. Whereas if you take some of those same ideas and playbooks and take it into an emerging market, whether it's um, in Kenya or Nigeria or 
Mexico or Brazil, where you have anywhere from 2 to 20% penetration of those types of products. And you can take the learnings and playbook that you, you had in the U.S., technology-based products, um, uh, lower-cost distribution through internet and mobile channels, um, uh, using alternative data sets for you doing your underwriting and take it into that market where instead of saying, hey, I'm having to you know, take a customer away from an incumbent where the product's maybe not great, but still is satisfying the need to some extent, and instead say, this gives me the capability to expand and address that 80 to 98% of the market that currently isn't being served, um, that that is a combination of, hey, I can take all these learnings from, from one market, understand that playbook, bring it into a new, new market, but you really need to have, in those cases, an entrepreneur who understands the specifics of that domestic market that they're going into and how to apply those learnings there. And so I think you need the combination of those two to be successful as you are moving across these markets and both understanding what are the commonalities I can leverage, but what are the unique aspects of this market that I need to be aware of uh, to be successful there. Is there a kind of significant growth happening there or is it still somewhat marginal and slow moving in these countries in terms of like you've gone from a very small number to a slightly bigger number, but in the aggregate, it still doesn't really mean very much. I think that depends on the market. And so in Latin America in particular, we are seeing and looking across both financial services and insurance kind of more broadly, we are seeing a lot of, of activity. And in some of those cases, insurance and financial services markets are a little bit more developed. And so we're seeing some of those products take off very, very rapidly in some of those markets in ways that are very exciting. Um, and I think insurance actually is paying, playing a key role there, um, particularly looking at kind of the embedded approach of, hey, we're now delivering this financial services product. We're bringing you know, new, whether it's small businesses or consumers, into um, the financial services ecosystem. And they'll often start with you know, some other kind of a product, whether it's kind of a, a, a lending and a factoring and a credit product um, or some type of, of, of banking. Um, but then oftentimes the nearest adjacency is, hey, this is bringing someone in in a way that we can embed or cross-sell an insurance product to them that they never would have brought before. But now it's becoming, this is the more natural medium to do that versus trying to go kind of direct to consumer and, and, and just sell insurance independently. And so I think that that cross-selling um, and kind of the natural extension of insurance within a broader financial services offering, um, I think it's going to be one of the really interesting trends over the next next few years that we're going to see. And I think Latin America is moving very quickly. I think Africa, um, we're seeing a lot of activity. Um, in a lot of cases, the markets there are a little bit less developed, particularly on the insurance side. And so it's a little bit slower. Um, and in those cases, I think we will oftentimes see healthcare being the one that leads. And so it might be um, short term, it might be uh, a, a medical insurance product, it might be a um, short term loss of income product, but there are a number of different things that we're seeing that will be kind of the entry points there. And then we'll see some of the other things start coming in over time as, as, those, um, as those markets develop. But 
different paces in different markets, different challenges, but I think it's one of the really exciting next frontiers we're seeing on both broader financial services and, and insurance specifically. And when you're looking at those areas of Latin America um, and, and Africa, are they still looking outward for, for example, if they're an MGA, looking outward for capacity, or is that sort of being solved within those existing existing countries with local local capacity and local insurers? We're seeing a little bit of both, but I think that is one of the places where, you know, in talking to some of the companies, um, finding some initial local capacity, but then they're very rapidly moving towards what are the ways that we can start accessing particularly reinsurance on an international level to provide more capacity as we're growing and, and, and cheaper sources of, of capital for doing that. I asked Steve, who is backing the Will Fund? The investors in our fund are primarily large Japanese corporates. And so it's across everything from Sony and Nissan and, you know, ANA Airlines and brand names that people know on a global basis to um, on the financial services side, Mizuho, Daiwa Securities, um, specifically in insurance, Tokyo Marine is one of our key LPs, Daiichi Life is an LP in, in the fund. And so while it's a financial relationship, we end up partnering with them to help with their innovation activities. Tokyo Marine um, has approached us and said, we would like to do more direct investing. And so we've actually set up a, a side fund that is the, the corporate venture capital arm for Tokyo Marine, where we're investing at seed and series A f- with them um, directly. Um, and doing again, doing that on a global basis and looking at both InsureTech and, um, and broader areas. Okay, did you catch that? Weist will mainly invest at later stages. Remember those 30 to $50 million investments? With a partnership with Tokyo Marine, the fund is investing much earlier at Seed and Series A. So if you are still in startup mode or scale up and wondering how to find out more about that, well, hang in there to the end. Steve goes on to explain the differences between how a corporate, often referred to as a CVC, which could be an insurance company, by the way, has also traditionally invested compared to a standard VC and how this is changing. One of the interesting things I've seen on the, the corporate side is historically, strategics were much more of a, a growth or later stage investor. So it's kind of you go through a first few rounds of venture capital, and then at some point later on, um, you, you look at approaching strategics um, as a, a later stage investor writing a, a fairly large check. And that tended to be a pretty long, cumbersome process. Let's find strategic value first, work through for, through for six months before we, we make an investment. Um, one of the things that I've seen is a lot of corporates starting to move away from that and get much more in the mode of, let's actually behave a little bit more like a traditional financial VC and looking at ways that, they can actually move earlier stage and recognizing the fact that if we have to go through this process of let's spend six months doing a pilot and see if there's a, a strategic engagement here before we do an investment, um, the best startups aren't going to wait around for that. So there was a adverse selection process that was, that was happening that ended up the CVCs were oftentimes not in the best deals. And I, so I think there's been a little bit of recognition around that of, hey, let's take an approach to where we can move quickly at an earlier stage to make an investment decision, 
to get into better deals and oftentimes start shifting the mentality from um, how can we extract strategic value from the companies we're investing in to how can we add strategic leverage to them. And so I think that 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 realization is changing the way that some of the the corporate investors are starting to work, at least the the better ones, um, in a way that I think is both beneficial to them of potentially, you know, avoiding the adverse selection, getting to some better deals so they can have some better returns, but also is proving to be a model that I think is more beneficial to the startups themselves. The other factor that, again, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this is, is we're seeing more organizations that are looking to be the delivery mechanism or the delivery platform for these companies. And so we're not, when I were talking about technology enabling businesses, not so much the MGAs, but you know, Guidewire, CoreLogic, even now, you know, companies like RMS are looking at how do they distribute third-party data and analytics. Mm-hmm. And so once you know, once somebody's got that kind of main platform installed, then it should be a lot easier to be able to bring in new data. Are you seeing that theme as, as well? I've seen both kind of, you know, the guide wires of the world, as well as even startups that are thinking about how do we become these points of aggregation. And we saw this on the financial services side too. It used to be when you did development, you sat down and write lots of custom code. With open source, it was, oh, let me kind of plug and play and kind of copy different things and it accelerated the pace of development. One of the things we've moved to is more of these kind of this API-based, cloud API-based um, microservices to where those become, you know, like a Stripe or other things. I just can write to an API, incorporate this this broader service into my development, accelerating. And now we're moving to where there are actually aggregation layers for that, to where it is. Um, and we're seeing this, you know, uh, for example, there's a company called Kodat um, that is uh, an aggregation layer to where you in, you integrate to their API and behind the scenes, they've integrated to all the different SMB accounting system. So instead of having to write an integration to QuickBooks and Sage and Zero and the 30 others that are out there, I can integrate once and they've already done the 30 different integrations. Some of these aggregation layers we're starting to see come into the insurance side again to where it is a, a case of, hey, let me um, integrate with one platform. And behind the scenes, they've looked at, okay, what is that ecosystem of different data sources that are out there to where I can kind of optimize which ones I'm pulling for, from in which way on a more transactional basis versus having to do this deep kind of evaluation of, you know, the, the four different data sources, how I'm going to integrate them um, and that complexity. And so I think that we're starting to see these things that, you know, are going to make it much more easier to kind of plug and play these both different technologies and data sources um, and optimize when I use which ones within an, an environment to to make this a much more kind of rapid integration process over time. And so I think that you know, we're starting to see both some of the platform players start to work on enabling that, but also startups thinking about, okay, how do I just provide kind of one API to rule them all, all type of thing of I can integrate one place and access, you know, 15 different services through one one API. Which brings me on to, on to Uncork. Uh, Stephen, you're, you're good enough to introduce me to Gary Hoberman a couple of years ago, and Uncork was one of your investments. What are you what are you seeing on that whole area of low code and no code? And I think, you know, the, the whole idea behind the Uncork investment was along both of those themes. So where I look at looked at Uncork is 
kind of this orchestration layer to where you can figure out, okay, here's kind of the the, the workflow and the logic for an application that I want to develop, right? And, and it plays that. But then you can plug and play into it. It's like building with Legos, all these other services that the, the low code gives you the ability to rapidly develop the logic of what are the different systems and data that I want to pull from. So it could be, you know, a a third-party data source I want to pull in very rapidly, or it could be a legacy system behind the scenes that I want to be able to, you know, push data to, pull data from, um, that allows me to deliver a new customer experience or develop a new product very, very rapidly without having to go replace all the legacy necessarily. And I think that that is one of the big things in in talking to some of our, you know, limited partners, particularly on the the insurance side, we're seeing is a move away from feeling like, hey, we have to go to a whole rip and replace of a legacy system um, that might cost me a couple hundred million dollars to do and take three years. And instead think about how can I leave that in place and use some of these other technologies to kind of build the new experience um, or build the new automation on front of that much more rapidly and much more cost-effectively. One of the other themes you talk about is the whole issue of sustainability, climate change, reducing carbon emissions. Clearly, that's going to be important for lots of reasons. I mean, insurance is interesting because it, it's exposed to it both from the investment side and also the underwriting side and regulation. But as you look out there at the solutions, what's, what's your view that is what's actually credible in terms of people you're claiming they've got data analytics to be able to measure those, the carbon emissions or reductions in carbon emissions? You know, we're seeing a lot of activity in that space um, today. And I think that kind of the, and, and there are two different kind of tacks that we're seeing. One is, um, like you said, the data for measuring, tracking, the exchanges that are starting to develop for, you know, buying and exchanging carbon offsets um, that I think is very interesting. And it's going to be really interesting to see where, you know, insurance plays a role in that on a, a forward-growing basis. I think that insurance is becoming, you know, very effective as kind of, in some ways, the canary in the coal mine of the potential cost and impacts of climate change as it's affecting us. I mean, and we talked about kind of joking about the uh, me sitting in the, the woods right now, but in California, you know, looking at you know, the increasing cost of wildfire in this environment. Um, and, you know, I'm not convinced that even with, you know, better technology to do underwriting and to be able to understand, um, you know, what are the areas you can actually effectively underwrite in in California now versus not, um, is a solvable problem from an insurance perspective in that, you know, in some cases, you know, it's just the risk is becoming much, much higher to what to the point that it potentially is becoming uninsurable. But insurers are going to be the early warning signal around this is the actual cost associated with the impact of climate change are the technologies that are actually coming into play to actually affect actual carbon emissions themselves. And it can be everything from new construction materials to where, you know, people that are developing concrete and processes for producing concrete that are 
either much lower in terms of the carbon emissions associated with that or even carbon neutral in that development process. And so, I, you know, some of those things are um, areas where, you know, the, the carbon emissions, particularly from concrete production, is massive. And so if you can actually reduce the emissions as a result of those through new technologies and new approaches, that's going to be a major impact. Those types of things are areas that we are very actively looking at, trying to understand and figuring out where we can invest in a way that can both have a drive forward some of the innovation to actually put in place and enable technologies that are going to have the real impact and hopefully helping us either mitigate or manage um, a changing climate, um, but at the same time deliver kind of returns for our, our limited partners and investors and our funds. Well, Steve, I've been very gracious for your time and learned an awful lot in there. Before we wrap up, if people want to know more about you, the fund, or Will, or any one of those, what's the best way for them to learn a little bit more? With Tokyo Marine, who's one of the key LPs in our main fund, we're also doing the Tokyo Marine Future Fund, which we announced a couple months ago, that is focused on seed through Series A, um, both insurtechs, but also fintech, sustainability, AI, a number of different kind of adjacencies as well. And the the goal there is really to do that that earlier stage investing. I think for me, being involved in it as a former founder and entrepreneur, a lot of times I had earlier stage companies that were coming and engaging with some really exciting entrepreneurs, but given our growth stage focus, didn't have a way to effectively engage with them at that stage. So I think that that's given me um, a, a way to partner with entrepreneurs at very early stages, help um, develop them, but also then bring the Tokyo Marine family of companies to bear to provide strategic value, both in you know Japan, in Europe, they operate on a global basis. And so I think that um, you know reach out to me through through LinkedIn uh, um, or um, by email. I think we have the uh, on the Tokyo Marine Future Fund website um, a way to contact us directly, but definitely kind of reach out. We're interested in um, entrepreneurs, in the U.S., in Europe, in some of these emerging markets um, to be able to engage and see how we can help out um, at those early stages. Excellent. Well, that's a very gracious offer. Uh, I'm sure we'll get some people contacting you. Um, but Steve, I'm going to let you start your day because uh, it's early morning. It looks like you've got a lovely sunny day there in, in California. And last night I saw you in London. Maybe I'll see you in the U.S. next or maybe when you're next over here. But uh, either way, look forward to catching up again. It was good to catch up. Thanks. Well, it's definitely worth taking a look at what Will are doing and who they've been investing in. At Instec, we're helping insurers identify the companies providing innovative solutions across a range of themes. And we're helping technology, data, and analytics companies tell their stories and help them get closer to their insurance buyers. But if you're not already talking to us and would like to hear more about what we're doing, offering insurers and technology and data companies with our corporate membership, then please do contact me, Matthew Grant, on LinkedIn or any of us. Hello at Instec. Dot com.